Hey everyone, this is uh, Dave Broadback sitting here. It's August of 2019 and I'm getting ready for the term. Uh, you may be here. It's really hot right now in here, in this room, but you may be listening to this when it's very cold. Isn't the internet amazing? Anyway, this is uh, the lecture you're about to hear is from Psych 4006, the history of psychology for the 2019 fall term. Hope you enjoy it. Well, it's called Germany. There are German-speaking people, like Germans didn't just pop out of nowhere in 1871. People went, oh, look at all those Germans. But Germany is, as a country, as a unified state, does not exist until 1871. Before that, there's a whole bunch of smaller, some weak, some very strong countries, mostly monarchies. Um, the, and they're in, in this loose confederation called the Northern German Confederation. The northern ones are. Um, other ones are uh, parts of the remnants of the Holy Roman Empire, which was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. Discuss. Um, and so you've got all these countries that are... It's more like the European Union than it is like modern country. It's, it's not something we have anymore, these kinds of things. It, but the closest thing is it's like the EU. It's also like the EU in that there is one giant state, an important one, that overshadows the importance of the others, and that's Prussia. Prussia with a P. I'm not mispronouncing Russia. It's Prussia. It's all of northern Germany going into what we would today call Poland. Well, not call Poland. What we would today is Poland. Um, there was a couple of unfortunate events in the 20th century that shrunk Germany's borders. Um, so we got Prussia dominating this northern German confederation. But these are all, they have separate cultures. Germany is, like I said, doesn't exist. This loose confederation, there's like 39 countries that make up this Northern German Confederation. So, in 1870, France does something stupid, which it declares war on Prussia. Uh, it's almost inevitable, two biggest kids on the block, so the two biggest, most advanced uh, economies uh, and countries on the continent, Prussia and France, are gonna clash. And I think we have to get our head around the idea. Today, we don't think of it like this because big clashes between countries tend to happen by proxy, things like that, because big, powerful countries now have nuclear weapons. So they don't tend to fight face-to-face -face that often. It was much more common uh, before that that countries would just have wars. It was just a thing. That's not good or anything, but there were wars. So what happens is France attacks Prussia, and that's a real mistake. France has an army that's basically running. It's organized like Napoleon's army was. Remember, Napoleon's gone in 1815. So they're sort of resting on their laurels of, uh, laurels rather, of, of, of 50, 60 years ago. Prussia is a modern state. Prussia has the biggest economy in Europe. Prussia has the most technologically advanced economy in Europe. Prussia uses trains to move troops in front. France doesn't. France has, doesn't have the communication ability that Prussia has. Prussians are communicating 
using telegraph lines that they actually remotely bring to the front. They are also communicating, but usually they're communicating with carrier pigeons and runners and guys on horseback. But they're still way more advanced than France, and they kick the shit out of France in this war. Uh, they occupy Paris. And then in Versailles, when the, 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 the French surrender at Versailles, in the Palace of Versailles, countries used to also do that a lot, humiliate the other country. So not only did we just beat you in a war, oh, here, there's the, this is the place that looks just like, this is where you, your kings used to live, you should surrender to us here. These countries are jerks. So, and then uh, uh, the, the uh, German Empire is declared in 1871. With Prussia as the center of it, the king of Prussia becomes the Kaiser of the German Empire. Kaiser is a German word meaning emperor. It's the same root as Caesar, right? And up until 1914, Germany was probably the most important country in the world, not just in, in Europe. It's probably the most important country in the world. It, it, it's technologically so advanced for the time. Its education system is second to none. Educated people all over the world spoke German because you had to read German to read scientific articles because they were freaking written in German. Right? And you got to think, like, and you think, well, what about the States? The States are just 1871, 1865 just finished a civil, you know, rather nasty civil war. 600,000 people dead. And then becomes pretty inward-looking isolationist. So the States isn't really a, a player yet on the world stage. It exists. People know about it. It's not like it's Luxembourg or something. But it doesn't really matter in the world. What matters in the world is France, the UK, Germany, and an ascended Japan. But Japan's just becoming an industrial country in the early part of the century. Of, the, of last century. So the most important country in the world by far is Germany. And this is, a lot of this is because of their education system. Their education system is, was, well, is again, but it was incredible. A lot of the ideas we have of modern education come from Germany. We have words in English. There are German words. Like kindergarten, right? Garden of children. Kinder is children. Garten is, you probably guessed it, garden. Um, in Germany, you went through different levels of schooling, and eventually, you ended up in university where you studied one thing. You know how you guys have majors and then you have electives? They don't do that in Germany. They didn't do that. So not unlike the system in the UK at the time and still at Oxford and Cambridge, you basically are an apprentice. In fact, in Germany, there's, in German, there's even a word, Wissenschaft, which means studying pure science for its own sake, unencumbered by the need for application. Germans have words for things like that, again, I've mentioned before. Not a word for glove, they use hand shoe, but they have this word. Germans are great. So the philosophy education in Germany is we're going to get you to the point where you master something. We're going to teach you and we're going to, once you, you get a very solid general education, when you get to university, you will get become extremely specialized in one thing. Okay? That's if you go to university. Not everybody goes to university. That's fine. 
Some people go off and do apprentice, other kinds of apprenticeships. They learn trades, etc. Or they may end up, you know, doing um, uh, unskilled labor. It doesn't matter. The point is, everybody gets this universal education in Germany uh, up to grade ten, kind of thing, which is unheard of in the Western world. Everybody gets an education. Other countries do pick up on this. France does the same thing, except their university system isn't quite as intense as Germany's. <clears throat> Nothing is as intense as anything in Germany. It's just the way Germany. Germany's intense. What's that German exchange student we had last year in the animal culture class? Is her name again? Can't remember. Anyway, it's too bad she's not here because she could tell us all about this and she could pr pronounce all these words properly. And she's also a product of, a, of this same pretty much system that's still kind of, you know, it's not quite like this in Germany anymore, but it still pretty much is. One of the things that was really important was the idea of academic freedom. I talked about this the other day about how loosely there was some academic freedom in, say, medieval Europe, but here we're talking about the modern concept of academic freedom. The idea that you can't tell a researcher what he or she should research and, or how they should do it. You, and I, I value this uh, as an academic extremely way up here in my things that I, that I think are important. So nobody can tell me what I can do research on. They can't. Now, if I do garbage, I'm not going to get promotions. Things like that, I'm not going to get tenure. But if I if I want to study something that's controversial, no one can stop it. Right? And when you have that kind of freedom to do that, you can see that intellectually it's wonderful because then you can do whatever the hell you want and you follow your passion, your interest. Right? So you can do things like just science for the hell of it. We're not trying to cure cancer here. We're just trying to find out stuff. And like I said, this system is so different, and it's still the system we have in the UK at a couple of universities too. When you get to university, you choose a subject, and that's what you study, and you study nothing else. Okay? Misaki, how does it work in Japan? University. Do we know? Like, do you study a lot of subjects or just one subject? Because I don't really know what the Japanese is. In the university? Yes. I think one subject. So it's like that there, too. That doesn't surprise me. Germany and Japan, uh, when Japan was the Meiji Restoration, right? So when, when you get uh, the industrialization of Japan in the 1860s, 1870s, Germany, they look to Germany for consultation on how to, how to industrialize quickly and on their education system. So this is surprising that they're still using that system. There. Um, in the States, right, there's a totally different system. And the system in the States is also a great one, which is a very broad education. Right? So, like, if you think of number of credits, how many credits do you need to get a psych degree here? 54, right? Or if there's three, three credit hours. Do you know how many you need at Harvard? 30. Your other 90 credits, 90, the other, so in other words, three quarters of your credits are electives. They're trying to turn you into a very broad, educated person. That's another approach, and it's great. What we've done in Canada is what we typically do in Canada. We take half the American system and half the British system and mash them together into something that's not that great. So we do that a lot here. I keep telling people, we should fewer credits, fewer credits. 54, let's go to 48. No. Let's turn out broad individuals. No, 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 no. Let's just get them half a bit of each. So when you get to university, a lot of countries, and this was pioneered in Germany and in the UK, you pick a subject, and that's all you study for three or four years. You know, at Oxford, you do exams twice in your four years, twice. You have exams after the first term of your first year, and you are allowed to, to 
can you pull your tool through the wall? And then after your fourth year, you have a seventh exam. That's it. Throughout the rest of your career as a student. So second year, third year, there's no exams. There's no tests. You write papers every goddamn week. Literally every week you meet with your tutor, and he or she talks to you about articles you've written in textbooks, and you write papers for them. And that's all you do. And you work in labs. In Germany, the system was you got to university, and if you were doing a science, you, you, got, you worked in somebody's lab. And then after four years, they said, you know, you're, you've, you know enough now, you get a degree. I would, I mean, I would have loved something like that as a student. I don't think everybody would, but I think it sounds like a lot of fun. A friend of mine, Melissa Bateson, whose father's Pat Bateson, uh, who, if you know animal behavior stuff, you might uh, run into his work. Um, we'll talk about him at some point in the animal behavior class. And Melissa, and he was at Cambridge, so Melissa went to Oxford for zoology. Went into the, what her dad did, and Pat Bateson used to have these arguments in the literature with Richard Dawkins. And they were friendly people, and they liked each other, but they had different views on almost everything. And Melissa's tutor was Richard Dawkins. So she gets to Oxford, and she loved telling the story of getting to Oxford, and she has her first meeting. And she knows Richard because they've met, because they're the parents. She says she sits in his room, because they props have rooms where you meet them, and you're both wearing academic gowns, because of Oxford. And he's got a light that just shines on the student, and he sits there almost in the dark, and listens. I'd love to do that. We're going to start doing that in our thesis meetings, okay? Um, and I got a light like that. And apparently after 45 minutes of Melissa talking, Melissa's very smart, like she's a professor at Duke, she's not, Melissa's really good. She's talking, 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 and it ended with him saying, Melissa, yes, Professor Dawkins? Your shoes on time. <laughs> That's all he said to her in the first meeting. I just love it. And he was just doing that thing, you know, because he's awesome. Um, but this system is turning at incredible academics. This is why Germany is so influential. So the emphasis on research, research-based degrees, this is not a, a curriculum. So if you go into a if you go into psychology in Germany at this time, once psychology starts, Voigt basically makes up a curriculum for you. It's not like, oh, you have to pass stats class. It's like, oh, you will learn statistics. You're in my lab. And you're going to learn everything else I know. Is this really turning out high-end academics? Okay? It's completely a foreign concept to most of us in here. It's just different. It's not a classroom education. You know who the father of psychology is. It is not Freud. It is that guy there. Wilhelm Wundt. Or as many first-year students call him, Wilhelm Wundt. This drives me up a wall. <laughs> Wilhelm Wundt. So, he got his MD in 1855. By the way, that's pretty young. 23, he gets his MD. He's not a dumb guy. Practices medicine for a while. And then like three years later, he's like, you know, I, I don't, I'm, this isn't doing it for me. I'm going to go work in Helmholtz's lab. And we know Helmholtz is doing all that color vision stuff. But remember, you don't think of Helmholtz so much as a, a psychologist because... He's really a physiologist, and he's talking about the gear in your eyes that allow you to see. Yeah, we call it psychology now, but you can see how what Vogt was saying was, no, let's talk about the actual inner experiences we're having and relating them to the external. He writes a book uh, in 1873, it's published in 1874, called The Principles of Physiological Psychology. Oh, it's a book with the title, with the word psychology. I have read this book. It is not a good read. My God, is it dry. 
couple of amazing things about it. First of all, he's not doing a lot of citation. It's all primary source stuff, because he's the primary source, which is pretty amazing. I can come up with, in fact, I will come up with a book about psychology right now. I will discover everything and write it down. I have no idea if you talk like that, but I only do a couple of different German accents. So, it's boring. It's just boring. Um, it could be boring because I can't read German, so I read it in a translation of Maiden's and Lousy translation. Could be that. I don't think that's what it is, though. I think, to me, this stuff is boring. That's all. If you really want to go to sleep, read a copy of Conditioned Reflexes by Pavlov. Wow. Is that ever boring? Again, I don't read Russian, so maybe it's because it's translated. In the preface, he says, this is a new domain of science. Very cool. So he's saying this is a scientific psychology. And he's trying to relate the external, the stimuli that are coming in, to internal mental events. So he's saying... While there are differences in the actual stimuli, how do we experience those differences in stimuli? Right? Classic psychophysics, yes? Um, so he gets to Leipzig in 1875, the University of Leipzig, and he finally opens his lab in 1879 in Leipzig. And that's when we say, typically, that psychology started. And that's because there's now a place to do the work. He doesn't have to go and hang out in other places to try to do this. He, he sets up a permanent lab. And it's a permanent lab, and it's, it's a government-funded research lab. In other words, it's like most research labs are today. It's a very mo Germany, again, is very modern. He starts, in fact, a psychological, the first psychology journal, which is, I uh, can't pronounce it, ZDT. You say that. That's how it's abbreviated. I don't, the Deutsche Dinger. I don't know. So, so 1981, he starts a journal. Um, right. So, Wundt is in Leipzig, and he's comes up with a system he calls voluntarism. Which sounds like it's voluntary movement or something, and that's not exactly what he means. It's just that it's based on the individual. Right? So it's not like it's voluntary and involuntary as far as having free will. What he means is it's something beyond reflexes. Okay? And his lab focuses on really vigorous and rigorous uh, uh, introspection. And it's not, it's not the way we think of introspection nowadays. Like when we talk about introspection right now, okay, we think it's, well, bullshit, right? Like, so if I say to you, how does your mind work? And you go, well... It's a flowing stream. That doesn't help anybody. <laughs> right? That kind of introspection doesn't help anybody. But when you think about it, introspection about which one of these is, is bright, which one of these lights is brighter, which one of these weights is heavier, that is introspection, but you have to be trained to do it. Right? So it's, it takes training to learn how to, how to notice things about stimuli and block everything else out. Okay? Okay. 
Now, we don't think of this, these other parts of Wundt's ideas, but they include things like naturalistic observation. So in other words, going out and watching people do things in the environment. Right? It includes archaeological type methods. So, and I don't necessarily mean digging in the ground, but it's things like looking at, you might almost think of them as like detective type things, right? So if you walk, if you see a pattern in the floor of a bunch of footsteps, you know where someone's walked, right? That kind of thing. And looking at history. So look back in history and see what you think people have done. Also look at primary sources. I was talking the other day about how Roman people would often, if they were literate, they would have a painting of them holding a stylus. And the same percentage of people holding right, a stylus in their right hand is the same percentage as today we see of right-handed people which tells you people have always been, had a dominant hand, and it's always been right-handedness. It's kind of cool. So he talked about that kind of thing. He, no one cares about that stuff, though. <laughs> they all care about psychophysics, which is good, because he, you know, that's fine. He started a pretty cool way of doing psychology. So he talked about causality in psychology. In other words, can the perception of one stimulus affect cognition and behavior? Of course, it can. But I mean, again, when you're doing this from first principles, that's pretty neat. He talked about goals and means, flexible goals and means. So this is problem solving. How many people here have taken cognition? Taking cognition. You talk about means-ends analysis that you do. That you don't really know you're doing it, but you do that. Right? So the idea of some things have clear goals, some things have fuzzy goals. And how are we going to get to our goal state? He's what's, first got to talk about this stuff. And he, nobody thinks of him today, doing these kind of things today. And I'll go into why in a second. He talked about the adaptability of thought and how... We can change how we think, and we can change how we perceive things. No, perceive is wrong word. I should say that. We can change how we organize perceptions to best solve certain problems. It's a very functional approach to things. And we would say today that that's sensible. So again, voluntary behavior doesn't imply that it's free. He's not saying it's free will, it's just that it's not reflexive. And Voigt wasn't prepared to say there was no free will, but he was pretty prepared to say we, the free will we have is really tiny. There's not a lot of free will. But if you are self-conscious, and that doesn't mean, oh no, do I look fat in these pants? Like, that's not that kind of self-conscious. I mean, actually understanding your own consciousness. Then you can have a little bit of free will. But it's, like, it's interesting that he didn't want to go the step that a lot of most modern psychologists take, which is, there isn't any, so um, that was a bridge too far for him. He also liked the idea of adaptation. You can see the idea of changing your behavior and your cognition uh, based on solving problems. He was a big fan of Darwin, um, like most scientists were. So, and this is now 20 years after Origins is published. Uh, Descent of Man isn't published yet, but it's coming, I think. Yeah. Well, by the time he's in, in the 1880s, yeah. Um, so, it has more influence than people thought it did 
I shouldn't say at the time, um, a little bit later when people started thinking about it. So I think I have it here, but I don't feel like going back. Uh, oh, bloody hell. That's why. Yeah, I'm going to find something on, on Google Maps. So he lived until, so from 1832 to 1920, 31st of August, 1920. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good run. He placed far greater emphasis on psychological adaptation than people give him credit for today, than most people do. Most books you read don't even talk about that. They don't talk about hardly any of this stuff. They talk about, is this heavier than this? And that's fine, because frankly, his biggest influence on psychology is psychophysics. I and mean, there's nothing wrong with that. But no one seems to notice all this other stuff that he's done in his life and all the other things he said. except for psychology historians, which is a very small niche subset of humans. I love this. Psychology is the study of the facts of consciousness. Actually, that sounds a whole lot like when we say the scientific study of behavior and cognition, doesn't it? Which is the way we now define psychology. So he's not that far off. You can see the effect this guy's had. And psychology then must discover the elements of consciousness. Now, when he says consciousness, he is thinking about what we think of consciousness, of, of our internal mental life, but he's also talking about stuff that isn't available to direct introspection. Right? So, for example, the idea that he wouldn't be surprised, for example, uh, uh, about uh, primitive implicit memory. That wouldn't surprise Flint at all. We don't know that it happens, but we can see evidence of it. So psychology must discover possible combinations of elements, and that's a simple sensation. And sensation is an element of consciousness, a perception, is a combination of outward sense impressions, he says. This is the stuff coming in, and this is how we interpret it. Okay. And then there's an idea, and that's a combination that arises from memory and early associations, other sources. So you have sensations, and then you have perceptions, and then you have cognitive. He's basically talking about psychology. It's very, when you read it, and you can just see from these points, which are, these last two actually come from, they're copy-pasted. You can see how you would read that and go, okay, fine, it's boring. <laughs> It's boring for a couple of reasons. Like I said, the first reason is that it's, it's, it's very basic stuff to, to all of us. You read it and go, yeah, I know, yeah, I know, yeah, I know. And also, it's clunky prose because it's translated from German. Never paid for a copy of this book. It's another one you should just always, you could legally download. The copyright has long passed. It's like I said, never pay for a copy of Origin of Species. Download a free version somewhere. So Wundt's new psychology had two parts. Immediate conscious experience, right? We know what that is. And that can be investigated in the laboratory and we have precise control. So when you think of sensation, perception, cognition, memory, all that stuff, that can be done in the lab with very precise control, the way that we, we do things today. 
and we're using internal perception. Basically, it's self-report, right? Which one of these objects is heavier? That kind of thing. It's self-report, but it's very basic. And now higher mental processes, and here we're talking about basically social psychology in a lot of respects. He said, well, that had to be investigated outside the lab, and he said precise control here was impossible. I think if you talk to Wundt today, if he was alive, uh, he'd be very old, of course, but he'd be in his 200s. But still, no, not quite, eh? Late 100s. But if you ask Wundt today, if you explained a social psychology experiment to him, he would probably say, oh, okay, you're right. Precise control is possible. So if you explain the Ash line experiment to him, right? You know, with the three lines and see which one is longer, except that one person lies and then everybody goes, you know, the Ash line paradigm. Um, I think Wundt would say, oh, yeah, that is precise control and it's studying conformity and that's a higher mental process. Okay, I guess you can do that. So I think nowadays, with the stuff that we, that we being humans, that the psychologists have discovered over the last 100 years or so of doing, say, things like social psych, I think he'd be impressed and he'd say, okay, you can do some of this stuff in the lab. But at the time, he just thought it was impossible. And you can see why. It seems, when your whole system is based on precise control, trained observation, you wouldn't think about testing individuals in a lab and thinking of them as subjects in an experiment. When you do experiments in psychophysics, and that's often to this day, you can, people often test themselves. Very often. And it's like, it doesn't matter how many subjects you have because everybody's perceptions work the same way. One of the very basic tenets of this stuff is that it doesn't matter what culture you come from or whatever, everybody's visual system works the same. Right? That kind of thing. So he said you do this through observation, case studies, etc., which had a rich tradition in the medical literature. So I think this is partially also his medical background. Because medical journals would publish not clinical trials of drugs, because people weren't really doing that. What they would say is, here's patient Z, and he's got this issue. Here's the symptoms, etc. So he, he would talk about studying sort of naturalistic observations of humans in their natural habitat, that natural habitat being, you know, out in society. So thinking, language, culture, social, that kind of thing. When I say thinking, I mean like problem solving. I'm not talking about memory, stuff like that. He was pretty okay with that, but anything beyond stuff that's really basic cognition, he says you got to study that out in the world. Okay. So there's Wundt uh, in his lab, and there's some people standing very carefully still. So they could have their photo taken, because exposures were really long back then. In the lab, you're studying sensation and perception, psychophysics, mental chronometry. What the hell? That's keeping track of time in your head. We still these are things you still do today. And things like reaction time. Very basic stuff. You can see he's sitting here and he's got a telegraph key he's got here. And because of, so part of this is because of technology, is that you could accurately measure reaction time down to hundreds of a second using electromechanical devices. You just couldn't do that before the 1850s or so. Technology wasn't accessible, there was telegraph, but the, the, it wasn't accessible to the common person. In Germany, it was possible because of the technological advances. This stuff only could have happened in Germany. Germany was the innovator 
in the world as far as tech goes, and it was the and it was the leader in education and the biggest economy. You can see why those things all together, and their education system second to none, but all together, you get a place where you're going to get a lot of innovation. Okay. Questions so far? But one anything? You good? All right. More on Wilhelm. Okay. For the longest time, we thought that Wundt was just psychophysics. And the old views thought him, called him a structuralist. A structuralist is a, a structuralism is a school of psychology that says all we care about is mechanism. All we care about is how the mind works. We don't care about the function of the mind, what it accomplishes. We just want to look at causality. So if you're thinking about, again, those of you who have taken any sort of courses with me about animal stuff, Tim Bergman's Four Wives, he doesn't care about function and evolution. He cares simply about mechanism. Okay? And psychologists are really good at that to this day. Analysis is the only, is the only goal here. And that comes... This old view comes because of a, the first psycho, psychology, history of psychology textbook. It was written in the 1920s, and it was written by a guy named Boring, and I kid you not. And the irony is not lost on anyone. And Boring basically was really influenced by a guy named Titchener, and as far as what to care about in good stuff. So all he cared about was the psychophysics stuff. He had this other psychology that no one cares about. So we've got the new view is the idea of looking at voluntary behavior, the idea that the mind is active in doing things. The idea of apperception, we talked about that at the end, that's cognition basically. The idea of vulgar psychology, which is, is um, kind of social psychology. Interaction of people with each other. A German, again, the word Volk doesn't really have a translation in English. It means more than people. It doesn't just mean people. We translate it as people, right? You know, Volkswagen means people's car. You've probably heard that. But Volk doesn't just mean people. It also means their culture, bound to their nationality. It's a strange concept that we have in, 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 uh, in English. But the, so the new view is the lab's important, but other things are important too. So a lot of people, you know, used to say that you know, well, what? wouldn't have done that. And it's like, yeah, actually he would have done, gone out and done naturalistic observation. Just that you only care about what Boring said Wundt did. So Wundt liked the idea of a creative synthesis. In other words, so it's not like thesis antithesis where you destroy things, like you know, two things come together and one destroys the other, it's thesis antithesis, and then they have a synthesis, they come together and make things. That kind of view of, of, of knowledge. And the idea that higher mental activity then involves real creativity. You don't think of that when you think of Wundt, because when you learned about Wundt, it was about psychophysics. Um, We have chains of activities. We have a heterogeneity of ends. In other words, different goals keep coming up all the time. And that changes our cognition all the time. Wundt was active as a researcher for a very long time. Basically, pretty much until the start of the First World War. More than 150 people got PhDs with Wundt. That's a lot. 
More than 150 people went through his lab and ended up getting PhDs. So Voigt ends up basically inventing psychology and then spreading it far and wide. People come from all over the world to study in Voigt's lab. Because first of all, at first, at the beginning, there's no place to go. And the second reason was, well, it's Voigt. He invented this. Let's go there. To put this in perspective, so he had over, I think it's 100, it's 152 or 250, it's, 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 well, it's over 150, I don't know. My PhD advisor had Pam, Catherine, me, Rob, had four PhD people come out of her lab. More common would be probably 15 in your career, maybe 10. He had 150 something. That's huge, right? So people come from the world and they come to Germany. They're already educated people, so they already can speak and read German typically. So they, they come to Germany and they work in Wundt's lab for four or five years. They produce some novel research. There's a PhD defense and they get a PhD. And then they go back home. They go back to universities very often setting up labs that are like Wundt's. And doing this as the first psychologist at some university. So they'll show up at University of Toronto in 1890 and set up the first psychology lab in the Commonwealth. In, was it called that? It was called the British Empire. The first psychology lab in the British Empire was set up not in London, England, not in Edinburgh, Scotland. It was set up at the University of Toronto by James Mark Baldwin. So he shows up. He comes from, back from Germany. He's like... I would like a job here as a professor of psychology. You don't have any of those. You should have one. Hire me. And to this day, if you go onto the fourth floor of uh, Sydney Smith Hall, which is a horrible neo-Stalinist structure on, on St. George Street in Toronto, where much of the psychology department is, there's a big display case that holds all of Baldwin's old brass instruments from the 1890s. It's very cool. And so these people, and they go to the, their own home, they go back to other universities all over the world and open up psychology departments. So the influence of Wundt is huge. All right, so questions on Billy Wundt? Alright, so the stuff popular with this stuff now, we'll take a look at that. Whoa, So,
Thanks for listening to the lecture. Um, all of the audio is available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for da- uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures at Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh- uh, um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada. Uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GNU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcasts, uh, like Podsafe Music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me, and I'll find uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the uh, what I call them show notes or blog posts. So uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks everybody. We'll see you next time. <laughs>